Let's talk about your third patient. This is a 43-year-old woman who is the wife of a healthcare professional in town, and she is in quite good health. One of those people that you know works out of the gym frequently is very, very active in the community in many settings. She had felt a breast mass, and again, she's had augmentation with mammoplasties with subpectoral implants for a number of years. And she noticed, she thinks really a couple of years ago, a mass in her breast. And this was evaluated. She, you know, saw a gynecologist on a regular basis, sort of as her primary care. She's otherwise been in excellent health and had mammography on a yearly basis, which always showed nothing. And she had been reassured, you know, several times that this was not anything that needed to be done with it, that it hadn't changed. She felt in the fall of 2008 that it perhaps had grown very slightly. So she went for her mammogram in November, which was again negative on both sides. She did approach the mammogram technician at the time of her procedure and said, yeah, it's always been negative, but what about this? So the technician really actually did her a favor and said, yes, I can feel this. You should get a ultrasound on it. And the ultrasound showed a solid mass. So an ultrasound guided biopsy was done. And interestingly, that showed a invasive lobular carcinoma with a very small focus of lobular in situ. It was strongly estrogen and progesterone receptor positive at over 90%. The size of this biopsy was about 0.8 centimeters. It was negative for HER2 by IHC and FISH, had a borderline KI67 of about 18%. So she went to see a breast surgeon here in town, and in late November, she had a lumpectomy and a sentinel node procedure. And the lumpectomy, there was no residual tumor found. She did have a total of six sentinel nodes removed, and there was one of them that had a seven-millimeter focus of metastatic malignancy. He therefore did a completion dissection, which showed 10 further nodes, all of which were negative. She had an oncotape assay sent, but because of the small amount of the original biopsy, the hospital unfortunately sent uh, samples out to California that did not have sufficient invasive cancer to enable them to do the assay. So the initial, at least at this point, we don't have results of an oncotype on her. So she came to see me and we were thinking about things. This was around the holidays and she wanted to wait to start any treatment until right after the holidays. She'd talk with radiation oncology too. Now, interestingly, at this point, she could still feel a lump in the left breast. So we had her go back to see the surgeon and she had a second biopsy just done approximately a week ago now. And that showed about one centimeter of invasive lobular carcinoma now with involved margins. So she's already had an axillary dissection. She had the initial biopsy with a small amount of cancer, less than a centimeter. She now has a full centimeter of invasive lobular carcinoma soon after her initial treatment. So this raises several questions that we're dealing with right now. One is whether, you know, the initial lumpectomy actually removed the area or was off to the side perhaps and 
and was sort of a false negative lumpectomy. And the other question is, obviously, at this point, she still has positive margins and would be considered for a mastectomy. And the other surgical question that comes up is, should her implants be removed or not? Remember, these are subpectoral implants, so there is the pectoralis muscle between where the cancer is and where the implants are. So that's the other question that we have right now. So she has no evidence of distant disease. And from my standpoint as a medical oncologist, what we were struggling and I wanted to have Skip consult on today is whether, given her young age and the small amount of axillary nodal positivity, whether she needed to have chemotherapy no matter what the oncotype showed or whether if the oncotype was indeed very low risk, whether she could be treated with hormonal therapy alone. And she's still having regular menses and otherwise doing well. What's your sort of attitude towards chemotherapy? What has she heard about it? You know, how much of a benefit is she going to need to want to take it? I think she's the sort of patient who, when we talk with her again about this today, she's willing to do whatever is necessary. You know, she feels she'd like to have her next 50 years of life, and she's willing to do whatever it is. I haven't specifically asked her, would you take you know, four cycles of TC for a 1% benefit. You know, I wanted to wait a little bit until we get the results of the oncotype assay. And we're also repeating on this new specimen, the estrogen progesterone receptors in HER2 to make sure that there's, you know, concordance between the first and the second one. Since, you know, I'm not entirely trustful of the first you know, small specimen that we had. This is a larger specimen of solid lobular carcinoma, and I really want to have that one tested and sort of base our decisions based on that. So, Skip, she's got one node involved, seven millimeter focus. That's all she has. The invasive tumor is pretty small. I'm a little confused in terms of this second thing, but I guess the bottom line is if she has a low oncotype, Skip, do you think that not getting chemotherapy you'd be comfortable with? Actually, I do. And, you know, going into the room to sit down with the patient, this was a case where I think two heads were better than one. And Lola and I had a very honest conversation with her and hearing the history again. She's a great historian. When you hear her go through it in great detail, you firmly believe that this has been around for more than a year. And so that's consistent with believing that the oncotype score might very well come back low. You know, the seven millimeter focus is small. Her primary was small. And I think in this scenario, if the oncotype DX comes back with a low recurrent score, I would tend to believe it. I think regardless, based on the ERPR and her history, that hormonal therapy is going to be the majority of her benefit. And so... You know, when her and I discussed it today, it's the kind of situation where if you're not going to be able to sleep at night because you couldn't take the chemotherapy, then take the chemotherapy. But if you're willing to rely on the oncotype score and believe in the result, then I certainly would go with that as well. Yeah, it's interesting. People, when the node positive data first came out at the 2007 San Antonio meeting, people immediately thought about the older patient with comorbidity with, you know, one node or part of one node. And yet here you have a 43-year-old woman, and it sounds, Skip, like even in spite of her age, you're willing to kind of go with the biology here. Correct. I think, you know, I'll quote my friend George Sledge, the biology's destiny. When you look at her social characteristics, she commented to me that she talked about her children. 
and I asked her how old she was when she had her children, and she actually adopted them. Because of uterine fibroids, she wasn't able to conceive. And so she's had unopposed estrogen since the time she was 12 years old. So that might be a factor in why she has a hormonally driven breast cancer that's her to normal, low KI. And I think Lowell and I both suspect that her Oncotype DX score is going to come back to be relatively low. Now, if it's not low, and if you do decide, certainly if it's high, probably even intermediate, that you might want to give her chemo, Lowell, what kind of chemo? I would give her TC for four cycles, as have many oncologists. I've giving anthracyclines to less of these sort of patients, and I certainly did five or six years ago. I think I'm fairly persuaded by the U.S. Oncology Steve Jones data for the node-negative patients and the lower-risk one-node-positive sort of patients. I have a harder time dealing with the ones that have you know, multiple positive nodes and giant-sized, very aggressive cancers. But for this sort of patient, I would certainly, if I was going to give her chemotherapy, my initial plan would have been to give her TC. You know, Skip, it's really interesting as an education group focused on oncology, we're always seeing new data sets coming out. It's so fascinating in terms of what it is that takes people to react. When Steve Jones first presented that TC data, people kind of looked at it, it was interesting, but when we did our patterns of care study that first year after it, very few people were using it, even investigators. But now, you know, two, three years later, it's rapidly becoming more commonly used than even AC. What have you observed over these last two or three years, Skip, as people kind of processed all this information? The points you make are the exact history, actually. Steve Jones' original poster on TCAC at ASCO in Dallas was in the corner of an upstairs room next to some poster I had about a drug that doesn't exist anymore. So he was relegated to that sort of position. And it was interesting data to me, and I made the comment at that time that that regimen didn't need to win that study. If it just was close because of the toxicity advantages, it would be good enough for me. And it's interesting how people really watch that. I think the maturity to the data, the fact that the curves got further apart, even though it was underpowered with a 1,000 patients for overall survival, it all trended that way. And then it paired very nicely. I think the momentum picked up with the TCH data. So that was docetaxel, carboplatin, and trastuzumab. But I think it made people believe that there's probably fewer and fewer subsets that benefit from an anthracycline. I think that was the turning point that got everybody comfortable. Yeah, and again, we've seen a big uptick in the TCH, you know, and all the discussion about the anthracyclines and the TOPO2 and the HER2 positive, and, you know, there's all this consciousness about the whole issue of cardiac problems. Let's talk a little bit about the hormone therapy in this lady, because I just wonder whether or not, I mean, first of all, I guess I should ask you, Lowell, what are you thinking in terms of hormones for her? Yes, that's also a very good question. You know, I was planning on probably starting her off just on tamoxifen. I mean, she's got a ways to go. So certainly if I give her chemotherapy, I would probably just use tamoxifen. Now, if I'm going to rely on hormonal treatment alone and not give her chemotherapy, that's another question that I would struggle with a little bit about whether I should give her hormonal suppression or not. I would say, you know, I'm not sure how well she would tolerate complete hormonal suppression. Now, do you have available to you the softer text trials? We don't right now. We could get that open, and we have put patients on that in the past. How about you, Skip? Do you put patients on those studies? I have not. It's interesting. We've passed those around. You know, physicians, my oncologist in our group, 
really have their own opinions about what they want to do with hormonal treatment, and it's tough to do the randomization. We've tried to do those in the past and haven't accrued well. I'm disappointed that we don't. I do think those are very, very important trials. Unfortunately, much of the data is going to come from international accrual. I mean, the Austrian study that they presented, you know, it got the big play at ASCO from the Zometa, which is another question that would come up in this patient. Also, you know, had, I thought, very impressive results with hormonal suppression and tamoxifen. So, and that was very similar patient to this one in their group. Yeah, it was exactly what I was thinking about. And actually, they had both hormonal suppression plus tamoxifen, but they had another arm of hormonal suppression plus an AI that both of them looked pretty similar. And of course, there wasn't an arm that had tamoxifen, which we know from our patterns of care studies, clearly the most common endocrine therapy used in premenopausal patients. But Skip, I think particularly since that Austrian study was presented, and I think they had like 6% recurrence at five years and these women did not get chemotherapy and that caused a lot of people to take a second look at just using tamoxifen skip what do you think about other strategies and what do you think about in this lady well i think the data you allude to really shows that the majority of the benefit she's going to get from the compilation of being strongly erpr positive Having a low KI-67 score, we know her HER2 status is normal. You know, we'll find out her oncotype. But this all builds in the direction of thinking about hormonal treatments, probably the most important thing that we can do. And that the additional benefit for chemotherapy, if we really could ascertain all the facets about the biology, this is probably the kind of patient that gets as little alluded to. We're talking about whether it's 1%, 2 or 3% absolute benefits and whether it's 5 10 15% relative benefit. What about ovarian suppression, though? You know, the U.S. trials for ovarian suppression, when it attempts to do an oophorectomy or to look at something like one of the LHRH agonists, the side effects were difficult to manage. And those trials halted accrual in the mid-90s. I think nowadays the doctors, and in particular the nurses, are much better at managing the side effects of that sort of scenario. You've got the added benefits of the bisphosphonates probably in several areas, but they'll help delay the development of some of the osteoporotic problems. So I think that in a situation like this, complete ovarian suppression, be it oophorectomy or be it LHRH, is a very useful strategy. So I do like that. This woman, I can tell you from talking with her, if Lowell told her to get an oophorectomy, she'd do it tomorrow. She's had fibroid problems. She's unable to have children. And it seemed as if the conversation was heading that direction today. So we'll see what everything comes back, but I think she'd like to have it done. So if she does have a neuphorectomy or ovarian suppression lull, would you be thinking about tamoxifen or an AI? Again, a very good question. I suppose in patient of this age, I would probably start her on tamoxifen and then switch her eventually over to an AI. I mean, if she had her ovaries taken out. Yes. I mean, It's a hard call. I'd have to think about it. I think those weren't the sort of patients really that were in the ATAC trials. They weren't the sort of patients. So you can't totally extrapolate from the studies that have already been done to somebody that you make postmenopausal. I certainly have the high-risk patients, the HER2-positive patients, those sort of ones. If I have their ovaries out, I always put them on an AI. This sort of patient, you know, it's going to be a close call. I think it's something you could argue with probably either way with a lot of docs. So skip tamoxifen, ovarian suppression or ablation slash AI, ovarian suppression, ablation plus tamoxifen. 
I'm an AI person in that scenario. You know, I believe in the idea that we might be able to prove the benefits of switching between tamoxifen and one of the aromatase inhibitors. But for right now, in each of the trials where an aromatase inhibitor was compared with tamoxifen, the aromatase inhibitor is a little bit better, regardless of how you measure it by response or disease-free or progression-free survival. So that's the direction in which I head. I'm open to looking at the trials and occurring to the trials, but I'll study. If I have a patient who's had complete ovarian suppression, I go ahead and use an AI. I think with her also the side effect. Now that I'm, you know, I haven't really gotten that far in my thinking about her case yet because I'm trying to make the decision of chemo or not. But the side effect profile of the AI might be a little more acceptable to her because I can tell you she would not like weight gain in the slightest, and I'm sure she'd have worries about other aspects of things. Although I've heard rumors that tamoxifen doesn't cause weight gain from the placebo trials, but you can't convince docs in practice. Can't convince that, the I patients guess. of it either. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> So. Now, what about this issue of a bisphosphonate for her? We were referring to the stunning, probably the paper of the year, I think, in breast cancer, the Austrian study that showed this 35% reduction in relapse rate in patients who got somata every six months. Skip, what were your thoughts about that paper? We had hoped that we would see confirmation in another study by now, but we haven't. What have you been doing with your patients? It's interesting. I think that the interpretation for myself of that data is encouraging. We saw some data from years ago about some of these agents having some positive effects on delaying breast cancer recurrences. So there's something to the biology, there's something to the science there. What it's caused me to do is to look for any excuse to initiate a bisphosphonate. I haven't started a bisphosphonate for the purposes of using it as adjuvant therapy, but I've certainly taken every opportunity in the setting of a patient that's at risk for osteoporosis or at risk for a problem to go ahead and initiate a bisphosphonate. So I'm anxious to see the results of those trials come along, and I do believe scientifically there's probably some real merit there. It was a very good study, and hopefully we'll get some rapid confirmation. That's interesting when you talk about an excuse to use a bisphosphonate, because this group, I can remember back in 2004 when I interviewed Mike Nant, the PI, one of the first things they showed was that the bisphosphonate completely abrogated the bone loss not just of the AI, but they showed that the tamoxifen premenopausal patients were losing bone too, and it abrogated that. So theoretically, you've got your reason, I guess, if you want it. How have you been approaching this low in your own practice, and what do you think you might do with her? With her, I would, I think based on the data that's out so far, I would feel very comfortable with giving her Zometa in the schedule that was presented. And I certainly at this point I'm intending to do that with her. Again, our practice in Florida, we don't have a large number of patients like this, but I, you know, was impressed to certainly, you know, if we're going to make this woman postmenopausal at 43, we're certainly going to be looking at bone density issues ahead. So I think even, like as you mentioned, the data from a few years ago looked very good from preventing the bone loss. So I don't see any real reason not to. Obviously, she's married to a dentist, so she could potentially have some objections. Well, it's interesting to bring that up because Lowell and I, while we're standing there today in the hallway between patients, one of his partners came up with the now two common question of, I have a patient on a bisphosphonate that needs a tooth extraction. 
and it was interesting. I sent them to the Mecca MD Anderson to get their answer, but it's not a common, common scenario, but it's something always in the back of my mind, and I would love, in conjunction with using the bisphosphonates, to figure out what the real additional risk factors are and what sort of timing we can use around dental procedures. What did MD Anderson say about it, incidentally? Well, we haven't heard back. You know, the question you just have to ask is how long do you need to be off the bisphosphonate and when could you restart it? So the numbers are the low single digits. I'm confident in quoting that. The problem is if it's you, it's 100%. So So do you, Lowell, for example, if you're going to start a bisphosphonate, do you send your patients to the dentist first? I recommend that they do. And I would say probably half of them do and the other half don't. So, I mean, it depends really on the, obviously, the severity of the situation, too. You know, if someone has metastatic disease involving bone and has other indications, you know, and and just needs to go on it, then I'm willing to accept a small risk. I've only had one patient, really, who's had that significantly in my practice over the you know, the last number of years that Zomate has been available. But it still is a devastating complication if it does come up. So we try to avoid as much as we can. This patient presumably has very good dental health and I would be monitored closely. So I think the benefits would far outweigh the risks for her. And I would intend to, if I can get it covered with insurance, would certainly do it with her. Now, another option she actually would have would be to participate in Julie Grelo's SWOG study. I don't know if you're participating in that, where everybody gets a bisphosphonate, but it randomizes between abandronate, zolindronate, and cladronate. Are you participating in that study? We have not had that study open. We do have access to SWOG studies through the Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa where we have an affiliation. So we could potentially open that study. We've not at this point. Correct. And our focus, and I think that's a great trial, and Julie's a friend, and I applaud the effort. I think it's going to be great. We've actually been looking at the Nosumab, as I know Lowell's groups has in some of the trials. So the area of bone health and the impact on these diseases, I think, is something that's you know, be a nice, relatively well-tolerated addition to the armamentarium. 